All right, we are in the middle of a series. We're actually in week two, so what's next? In our walk, in our search for a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, um, we, we, we came up with a word, and this is going to be our, our attitude, our mindset for this whole series. Um, it's called fear of the Lord, right? And, and that's just, just got to be a, um, the posture that we take as we look at some things that we are going to do. And it's so easy when we do the things to give us credit and, you know, all this kind of stuff, but we really got to look at these things and understand where they place according to God and his perspectives. Um, fear the Lord. Uh, it's just that, that, that recognition that, that, that he's the creator of everything and, and we're not. Um, and he's so far above us and, and we're not. And yet he closes that gap with the blood of his son. I mean, and that produces in us just a jaw-dropping awe. And we have to keep that attitude as we look at this stuff that we initiate Keep in the back of your mind that God is the greatest mystery the world has ever known. He has revealed an immense amount of stuff for us, but still, he's God. Don't ever, don't, don't ever let that uh, leave your mind. Paul wrote it like this and explains the attitude, why this attitude is so important. This is in Philippians, uh, the, the city of Philippi. Paul traveled through it, and he wrote this. Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, we kind of asked ourselves, well, why? Because in other places, Paul says, be bold. Don't have a spirit of timidity. But then he concludes, so we, we kind of put everything in proper perspective. Why with fear and trembling? Because it's God who works in us and for us to do God's will. It's not us. That's that fear of the Lord thing. We just kind of keep, it's all about God, it's not about us. And if we can keep all that straight, we can really jump into these spiritual disciplines that we're going to look at. Um, and, and they're going to serve us well. Right? Instead of becoming a, another chain around us, they're, they're going to be a, a, a tools of freedom more than anything else. God is the key, we are not, and that produces in us 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. I know it sounds strange, but this is what fear of the Lord will produce in us. No fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And what this passage is talking about, there's really three kinds of fear. One, there's a misplaced fear. Fear that the world could do something to you. And Christ says the world can do nothing to you. Right? I've got you in the palm of my hand. Stop worrying about what the world can do to you. They can do nothing to you compared to me. Just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Um, so there's that misplaced fear. And there's also this unscriptural fear that, we're, that, that God's somehow going to punish us each time we break a rule. Right? I know a lot of people, like, they're, they're literally, as soon as they do something, if something bad happens that day, well, that's God punishing me. I'm sorry, that's not the way he works. He doesn't punish us and reward us for every little thing we do. He has given us a tremendous amount of freedom. He's given us his Holy Spirit in our lives, and he's pretty much said, hey, go do. You're not robots. I'm not going to control you. Stop trying to pray in such a way that I would control you. You are free spirits. God's word talks about the sparrow, how wonderful the sparrow is and how God watches the sparrow. Y'all understand the sparrow is not free. You understand it does nearly everything by instinct. It doesn't make choices in the way that we make choices, in the way that God honored us and gave us dignity to make those choices. The sparrow and the animals, they instinct, they just do. We're not that. If you listen to the creation Genesis story, we are above everything else that was created because he breathed life into us. He breathed his spirit into us. We're radically different than all the rest of creation. We kind of get that in our minds, right? So 
In other words, hit that next slide there. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. The right attitude, and God just pours out blessings on us. Now, most of us would love to have a character like, like that. Wouldn't you, would you just love to have a character perfected by love? Would you raise your hand if you don't want that kind of character? I was going to say, if anybody raised their hand, move away from that person. <laughs> I mean, if they're that honest here, <laughs> they're scary. Um, most of us, again, would love to have that type of character in which rule-keeping um, rule keeping mentality could never give the kind of character that you want to have. Right? It, it just it wouldn't do it. And, and, and God wants to give you the type of character that is your true self, your redeemed self. Not the self of pop culture where it's all about you, but the self with God at its center, the soul. I mean, he wants to develop that kind of character. Again, that if you're breaking in half, if you, somebody broke you in half, that they would see clear through. Right? It wouldn't be a surface thing. They would see clear character clear through. And it's kind of gross to think about somebody breaking in half like that, but kind of go with me on this one. And again, here's the problem. Exactly how does God intend to give me the character of Jesus? Right? The, the, the what, the character, that's easy. I want to have that kind of character. Up, oh, boom, done, done, I'm done. That's what I want. The how. That's what tripped up the rich young ruler. He knew what he wanted, but the how. And he said, no thanks. He didn't want it bad enough. He knew what he wanted. But the method that God chose to change him, he just said, nah, I... I you know, I, I can't do that. So again, how does God intend to give me this character of Jesus? Our tendency as humans, this is the first thing that enters a lot of people's mind when they see somebody misbehaving. We'll just put it that way. The first thing on a teacher's mind and in a, <laughs> just about, and I'm, I'm a teacher, so I, I think, make another rule. <laughs> That'll fix the situation as a youth pastor. they parents would hear a kid cuss, pastor, you need to do a lesson on swearing. And I'm thinking that'll solve everything. <laughs> I'll take care of that Wednesday night. <laughs> no kid will ever cuss again. Like, right. Hey, they're holding hands. You need to make a rule about that. Oh no, no rules aren't going to create character in us. They're all just, they're just going to strap us into what we're not allowed to do. They're going to lead us to believe that God's robbing us from something, right? So our challenge, our challenge is not to add another rule, setting the bar a little bit higher. Our challenge is to become a different person entirely. Jesus is calling us to a complete transformation of character. Now, this is the key right here. Without a transformation of character as an intentional goal, we want to believe so bad that I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday and I will get the character of Christ by simply being here. Right? By that philosophy, if you're sitting at McDonald's, well, you're a, you're a Big Mac. Doesn't make sense. This place doesn't make you a Christian. This is where you learn what it means to be a Christian. Again, without a transformation of character and, and it, as an intentional goal, that's the whole point of this message, so what's next? We're going to try to set intentional goals. Then Jesus and faith and religion, listen very closely, they, they become nothing more than a reason not to have our character transform. Right? A lot of us use religion. We use God. We like, okay, we sinned. And you'll hear this on TV a lot with, and I, I shouldn't call it this. It's called rock star Christianity. I sin. Jesus loves to forgive me. I sin some more. He forgives me. I sin some more and he forgives me. And what a beautiful, beautiful relationship. 
and they get on TV and they brag about it. Jesus loves me. He loves it when I have sex outside of marriage because he loves to forgive me. And you're just thinking, ah, that's a strange interpretation. I mean, I know a lot of people have their own interpretations, but wow, that, that, that's kind of a, that, that's a stretch. Huge, huge stretch. What if the rules, I just want you to consider this, and I, and I believe this to be true. What if the rules weren't necessarily about future consequences only? Like whatever we do now really has no effect until after we die, as if the rules affect our eternal destination, heaven or hell. What if, what if, and I, again, I believe this to be true. What if the rules weren't necessarily about that future consequence only, but they were really sign points, signposts pointing to a greater purpose? And the rules were simply God's way of saying, look, if you violate these rules, you're going to miss out on what I have for you. It's not like I'm going to punish you. You're literally going to punish yourself. I'm not standing up there ready to drop a shoe on your head. Right? You're going to, heat, you're going to beat yourself up. You're going to judge yourself is, what, is what's going on here with these rules. They don't, and I think in the view of Christ, these rules, whether you, whether you keep them or not, doesn't, it's not a doctrine on heaven or hell. It's a doctrine on will you enjoy the life that he has created for you or will you not? That's, that's, that, that's, that's everything right there. Again, if we read the Bible as a love story from God rather than a bunch of rules and prohibitions, right? Lots of individual morality lessons to gauge the probability of us going to heaven and the probability of our rotten neighbor not going to heaven, right? That's kind of what we do with the rules. Would you agree? We kind of like, uh, nope, they're definitely not going because look at all the rules they break. That person, I bet I'm going to see him in heaven because they keep all the rules, right? And we, we have this crazy, this, this mentality. What if, again, all his commandments were actually warning, simply God saying, look, these are the things that will rob you of the joy that you will get if you live for my purposes and not for your own little kingdom, Kind of like dashboard warning signs. You see a sign, and it's not like the car's going to blow up right then. That's, that's punishment. <laughs> but if you continue to ignore the warning light, you're gonna, the problems are going to escalate. The bill's going to get bigger, bigger. I would imagine, I, I would suggest that we begin to look at the rules, the commandments, all that, kind of in the, in the long, long lines of a, a dashboard warning sign. Don't do this. You're going to miss out. Your joy is going to get robbed if you do this. It's not like I'm going to send you to hell. You're going to send yourself to a living hell. Hmm. And again, how important is it to know your purpose? Just how important is it? Can I just show you this? This passage will kind of rock you. This is in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. I'm going to show you three different versions very quickly here. First, the King James Version, because this is the way y'all heard it. The way you first heard it. Where there is no vision, where there is no purpose, where there is no revelation, where there's no plan. A lot of different ways of saying that. Where there's no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. I love the word perish, right? There's a Hebrew word, para, and it means, um, if you can picture me, bald Jerry, driving down the road in my pickup truck, my windows are rolled down, and my wife's sitting in the passenger seat, and her hair is going everywhere. Is she happy? No. No, 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 not at all. It's not bothering me because I got no hair. But her life is going in a thousand different directions at once, right? This is the picture. This is what he's writing when he says, Paris, your life is going to look like my wife's hair when I'm not paying attention and I'm driving down the road. Um, 
The NIV gives an even clearer picture and understanding of how we end up like my wife's head. Check this out. Um, Proverbs 20, this is the NIV. Where there is no revelation, where there is no vision, where there is no plan, where, God, where you don't know what God's up to, people cast off restraint. Check that out, right? And when we don't see God's vision for our lives, we tend to settle for whatever counterfeit is available. And we do. We just fall into it. We don't even do it. We don't even think about it. Again, following Christ is going to require some incredible intentionality. And by default, this world is not, you understand, there is a, a power in this world. Christ is a greater power, but the, the prince of darkness has been given a certain amount of power. And when we eject Christ, by default, we get filled in with whatever is around us. And guess what's around us? Just a lot of filth. We push God out. It's a vacuum. That's just the way it works. Without God leading us and showing us the next steps, we tend to focus on ourselves, our own reputation, our own bottom line. And then look at the message version. This is the same passage, the message version. If people don't see what God is doing, people don't see the vision, don't see the plan, um, they stumble all over themselves, their hair, you know, whatever. And then this last line, but when they attend to what he reveals, and that's that law part. If people can't see the reason behind the rules... If they can't see the reason behind the prohibitions, um, they're probably not going to be engaged with the mission. Does that make sense? If you're a company owner, you can have a whole bunch of rules, but if people aren't fully engaged, then the rules will just be, doesn't really matter. And, in, and it's like, not even in the church world, but in the, 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 the big world, it's like we're cursed almost. Right? We're almost cursed if we don't have a vision. Check this out. These are statistics. Worldwide, 13% of employees are engaged. Engaged simply means they know the importance of the part they play in the bigger picture and they're proud of it. 13%. If you look at the countries, the, the companies around the world, only 13% are engaged. 87% of the workforce is unengaged. They're not committed. They check in. They check out. Think about the church world. Is that... You ever heard of the Pareto Principle? <laughs> Seven points off, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, kind of, 20% engaged, 80%. This is even more shocking. Uh, companies with engaged employees outperform their peers by 202%. That's crazy. It's a huge amount if you understand statistics, and I don't really, but that looks really big. In another study, they compared, uh, they took two people. One was engaged, had an engaging job, and the other one had a no-end job. There was no purpose, no nothing. Um, they paid him a ton of money. They paid this other person cruddy money. And what they found is they could, they could lowball this guy. They could lowball him, and he would keep working, and he would be happy. He, she, whatever. This guy, they kept paying him, kept paying him, kept paying him. And because his job was pointless, he was always unhappy, and he always wanted more money. Strange. That goes for this church world. If you're feeling like you're disengaged, if you engage, your life will change. It'll just change. I mean, we have so many ways for you to engage. So, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, this series is going to help you move forward. That's my prayer. And allowing God to form in you a new character, a brand new character with true purpose and confidence and hope. And maybe, maybe you've reached in your life a tipping point this morning. I'm going to pray in just a little bit. A reach, you've kind of reached a point and you know something's missing, but you're not sure what it is or how to get it. And maybe, maybe you're in a spiritual rut. You've been doing the same things over and over and over again. You're thinking this life is just kind of boring. Maybe being reintroduced to your maker in this series 
is what you need maybe. And so I just want to ask you as we move into a time of prayers, just to open up your heart and, and just decide, Lord, um, in this series, I'm going to, we're just going to start all over. Right? We're just going to start all over. Hi, my name's Jerry. Hi, I'm God. <laughs> That'd be weird, huh? That's what I want our prayer to be for just a few minutes this morning. Um, whatever you know about God, whatever you feel you know about Jesus, um, open yourself up to discovering new things about him this morning. Y'all bow your heads for just a few minutes. Again, while we're praying, the, the altars are open. You can come forward if this is a comfortable place for you. Um, you can pray again right where you're at. If you feel God leading you to pray for somebody, neighborhood, friends, do that. But then move toward this, this idea that we're going to be talking about this morning. How do we know God? How do we know God? Do we really know him? Father, you've given us your word. You've given us your son. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us a world that screams creator. And Lord, for lots of reasons, we fight that. We don't want to have somebody in charge of us. And we think that's freedom. But in this world, experience shows us that that world becomes our, our chains. And Lord, the real happiness and the joy, and again, this isn't theoretical. People give testimony to this for 2,000 years now. That when we allow Jesus into our lives, when we allow God to shape us like his son, we're finally at peace. We're no longer striving. We can finally be still and know that you are the Lord. And what a wonderful place to be, Father. This is, this is where we all want to be. Father, this morning, creating us a character through and through, like your son Jesus. Lord, open up our hearts, open up our courage. We know what the what is, but the how, boy, we got to trust you, Lord. And I guess that's what I'm praying, Lord, that we would all trust you, that your plan, the way that you're going to make us like Christ is the best plan, period. So, Father, help us to surrender. Help us to submit, not only to one another, but to you, Father. And by submitting to you, you then release us with power. And we spread your glory around the globe so that there won't be a knee that will not bow because they will all know you, Father. So this morning as we continue to worship and the worship band comes back up and, and we just sing praises to you, Father. Just help us to be, to be honest with you um, that we do struggle in knowing you and knowing what you want in our lives and we, we push back against that. Father, convince us of your love. That, that's all we want this morning. Convince us of your incredible love. As if you on the cross didn't convince us enough, Lord, you said that you would continue to walk beside us the entire way. That's what we need this morning. We need to see you, Father. Thank you for providing ways for us to see you. Lord, help open up our hearts, open up our minds um, into the ways that you have given us 
to find you. Thank you, Father, for this morning, for this place that we can come and glorify you and ignore the world for just a little while, the world's desires, and then we can leave this place and reach the world. Thank you, Father, in your son's name I pray. Amen. As I shared with my class this morning, for about 25 years now, I've stood in front of people and told them the good news. That, that, that's what God called me to do. I remember when I was 16, he, I felt like he was calling me to be a minister, and I said, no, thank you. I was polite, right? God. <laughs> but I, I just, I ran from it. I, I, I sensed it, but I, I, I very much ran. And I was about 36, 37 years old, and I just kind of sitting at my little peninsula in our, our house in Fairfield, um, and I just decided, you know, I, 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 there, there's something missing. Right? There's something, something missing. And again, most of us, as I talk to people, and as I share the good news, it's the, the strangest thing is that they, people don't know what they're missing either. They, 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 they struggle. And I can tell that they are struggling by the questions they always come up and ask me afterwards. Here's the strange thing. I talk about Jesus. I talk about God. I talk about the Holy Spirit. And yet after, no matter what, I don't even know if anybody's ever broken this, like it's almost a rule. They don't come up and ask me, introduce me to Jesus. They don't, they don't come up and say, um, I want to meet God. Even though I, I talk about it like crazy, it's almost like, no, that's, that's impossible. That's, you know, we're here, there. Um, and, but what they'll do is they'll ask me a whole bunch of questions of what God thinks, what God wants them to do, what God's like. What, you know, they want to know about God, but they don't really want to know God, if that makes any sense. Maybe some of you have been in that kind of place and you've met people like that. They don't necessarily want to be godly, but they, they kind of want to know what God's thinking. They kind of want to know on what side of the line they're on. So it's at the back of everybody's mind. I wonder what God thinks about this, but I don't necessarily want to meet him because I'm afraid of him, right? That's that unscriptural fear. That's that, you, you don't have the love of him, of him in your heart and you're, you're kind of afraid of him. You're, you're just afraid of him. Um, again, can I actually know God? Strangest thing though, non-believers think it's impossible. And what I found is believers, to a kind of a funny degree, almost a ridiculous, presumptuous degree, oh yeah, I know God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll know, I'll know God. But the strangest thing is if you look at their life, you think, mm, they might not be very good friends because they don't act alike. <laughs> right? You, you, you notice a disconnect. They probably notice it in their life, and you're watching it, and you're noticing it. Just a warning. Everybody's noticing it. If you think it's a secret, <laughs> everybody knows. And they're looking at you going, huh, disconnect. They talk like this, but they act like this. Mm, disconnect. Right? So... This passage, it makes me wonder. I look at this passage and it kind of scares me. Not only for myself, but other people. Right? It says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is in Matthew chapter 7. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Continue in verse 22. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And in verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. And as I thought about that, it, not only is it scary, um, but if I'm really, really honest, that described my faith up to when I was about 36, 37 years old. That, that described it perfectly, right? I'm, I'm committed to God. I call him Lord and Savior only because I'm told to. I really haven't made him my Lord and Savior, but everybody tells me that's what I'm supposed to call him, so I do. I confess with my mouth that I don't want to go to hell, 
That, that, that was it, right? In my mind, he saved me from going to hell. He didn't save me to do something amazing. He didn't save me for an amazing purpose. He just saved me from something. In my mind, but he had such a bigger, bigger picture that I had no idea at the time that he had this huge, huge, huge picture. Like, you know, I, I shared this earlier. Like, I know who God was, but I'm not so certain I, I, I knew God. Maybe you, you, you've been in that same place. Maybe you know some people. Maybe you're there right now. Big difference between knowing about God and knowing and calling him your best friend. Huge, huge, huge difference. And again, for many folks, knowing God simply is um, assenting or, or agreeing to a propositional statement. Right? I believe that he is the son of God. Boom. Done. I'm good to go. I, I mentally agree that that is, in fact, a true statement, but that true statement does never breaks in to, to my life. What does it mean to know somebody then? It's a great Greek word, genosko. And this is what it means to know. And every time the Greek in the New Testament, when he says, do you know me? Do you know Jesus? This is what he's talking about. Right? It goes beyond an intellectual knowledge or mental awareness, cognitive, like I know Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I know that. That's a fact. Yes. goes way beyond that. It implies a personal first-hand experience. Right? It implies a, a really a personal relational deepness and connectedness. That's why we associate. I know you've all told the joke, right? Did he know her? Oh, we talk about that when a man and a woman comes together and conceives. They knew each other. Well, the crazy thing is, that's really not what the Bible was driving at, although that's what we kind of joke about. They knew each other, meaning they came together in really a spiritual fashion, more than anything. It's really not the physicality and the sexuality of the act. It's really to know, is to just, to, to know them in a deeper way, in a, in a more intimate way, not just a sexually intimate way, but in a, an emotionally intimate way more than anybody else, to know somebody, first-hand experience. Why is it so important to this whole idea about what it is to know? Because God is the only one who will know you like you will, like no one will ever know you, like you will never know yourself. And if that's a true statement, you probably ought to know him. That make sense? If he knows more about you than you'll ever know, it'd be a good idea to meet your maker. Because he's the only one that knows you at those deepest levels. And you will never find fulfillment and true lasting joy without him. God's word says it. That should be good enough. But I promise you, you talk to fellow Christians, people who have walked the walk, they'll tell you the exact same thing. <laughs> Knowing God is the key to their life. It's the absolute key to their life. Oh, there's a whole bunch of other keys on the ring, but that's the one. That's the master key that gets you in everywhere. That, that's it. God is the absolute key. And again, I'm not talking only about a first step with this series. I'm talking about a continual walk. And that's what he promises us. If we continue to walk beside him, he will be right beside us. So this morning, I kind of want to highlight three different ways that we can know God. And these are ways that he's given us. And again, these are ways that we need to be careful because we can kind of take control of them and it can be all about us and we can pat ourselves on the back and we can be all amazing and it ceases to be about him. So fear the Lord, right? As we talk about these three things, fear the Lord, right? Kind of our, our, our mindset. Um, the first, how to might surprise some of you, might confuse some of you. Um, the first way to know God is by baptism. <laughs> and now you're going, what? That's crazy. It's not. 
what do they call baptism? The, the wedding band of Christianity. Anybody heard that comparison before? It's like, it's like a, the ceremony that me and my wife, we walked down the aisle and we put a ring on and in front of a whole bunch of witnesses, we, we said that we would be committed to each other till death do us part, right? That, that's what a marriage ceremony is. Kind of that's what people have viewed baptism as, right? Somebody coming along and saying in front of a whole bunch of witnesses, me and you, Lord, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a part of your family now, me and you, I, I'm entering your family, and, and boom, all these witnesses, and, you know, but that's really not the picture. In fact, in marriages now, we're, we're, we're seeing how this is happening. People, you've all been doing this, you didn't realize it, you're actually, you, you've done two ceremonies more than likely. You went to the courthouse and you got a document a marriage certificate, that marriage certificate is really what makes you legal, right? Uh, Justice of the Peace could have signed it right there and everything would have been good. But then Christians and even non-Christians, they all decide, you know what? I want it it all said in a church. Well, why is that? If the Justice of the Peace made it all final, if if he signed on that line instead of me, it would have been legal. Would have been totally legal. Why do people want to come into a church What's the big deal about coming into a church? Here's the deal. Same like with marriage. Um, when I say, and my wife says, that we do to each other, it's not just the two of us. The pastor and the church decided that you two should be wed, and the pastor decided that, yes, this is something that God's behind. This is something that I can stand behind. And I'm going to play, pray a blessing that you never part till death do you part. Now, here's the deal. If we didn't do it in front of the church and just justice of the peace, and those two people walked away, they weren't part of a body, tell me, you all know, know the statistics, what's the success of their marriage? Maybe 50%. Maybe 50%. And you've heard in the newspaper that Christian marriages are the same percentage. They're wrong. That's wrong. That was a miss, bad misquote. Christian marriages run about 76%. That, that, that's a lot better. It's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better. Really what we're doing in this ceremony is the church is saying, look, you two love each other. You two are committed to each other, but you're not going to make it unless this body helps you. This body is here for you to remain together. It's not you two all alone. It's not about just you two. It's about the whole, in the Jewish system, I mean, it was a whole week. It was, everybody was involved. That's why the party was so long. This, this coming together was not just these two families. It affected everybody. Your baker was now married to your butcher, right? And it, it mattered. It mattered that the two people were, two families were coming together. It was, a, it was a big, big, big deal. Same with baptism. The exact same thing with baptism. When you get baptized, it's not just between you and God. You're not making a commitment with God in front of a bunch of people. You're making a commitment with a bunch of people. The church is baptizing you, is bringing you into the fellowship. We can say no. I can say I won't baptize you. I have that power. I feel like I'm power hungry here. (laughs) Um, No, that's not what I was driving at at all. Um, But literally, baptism, like the marriage marriage ceremony, it's it's a church thing. It's a body thing. It's not just two people. The same with baptism. When you're baptized, you're baptized into a body, and this body is going to help you grow in Christ. Good luck going it alone. Good luck going it alone. Same with marriage. Good luck going it alone. Odds aren't real good that you're going to succeed. This is why Jesus was so adamant that we would be baptized. Not that it saves you, but that it will form you. It will help form your character. 
that makes sense? This body, we all have responsibilities. That's why it bugs me that the statistics say 80% of you are disengaged. But that's not really what that stat was saying. They were saying worldwide. But here, that's scary that we're not engaged. And again, this is why Jesus, several times he says, the first reason he says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Why should we get baptized? Because he got baptized. Says this, uh, at that time, Jesus came down, came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He did it. He recognized it as important, so we do it. If Christ did it, we did it. A second good reason is because Jesus commanded it. In actually a couple different places, but this is the most famous place. It's a great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it continues a little bit more. And a third reason, hit that next slide, it demonstrates that I'm a believer. That's kind of the one where we kind of land on, right? I'm going to do this whole public demonstration because then everybody will know I'm a Christian. But again, I need you to take it one step further. This is a body of believers accepting me into their fellowship. And in their fellowship, I'm going to grow. I'm going to become Christ-like. They're going to be like iron sharpening iron. Some of them are going to make me mad. Some of them are going to make me happy. But as we work together and God's spirit is involved, then we have a holy community. We don't just have a group of people hanging out together. We have a holy community empowered by the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to love one another and show that glory to the rest of the world. So again, it is a public declaration uh, between the church and the new believer. Again, the temptation is to keep the whole thing a secret. That's why we do the big public thing. That's why you don't go get married in the woods all by yourself. We want everybody to know because it's a big commitment. Marriage and baptism are both big commitments. They recognize that we need everybody to help us so we don't do it privately. And in fact, your faith should never be private. It's a personal decision, but it should never be a private decision. Never be a private. It is personal, but at that point, it's very public. We are the body. We're the body. We need each other. And being baptized simply acknowledges this interdependency. We, we really do need each other. So again, if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, um, on your connection card, would you please right now or before you leave, pull that out, put your name on it, says, I, I believe and I want to be baptized. I want to be a part of this body. And then we will baptize you. We'll send a date. We're going to have a membership class so that you understand what you're getting yourself into. Right? And then we're going to celebrate that you are a part of this body. So right now, again, as I continue to, to talk up here, you pull out that connection card. Hey, I want to be baptized. Boom. Put it on there. Right? Uh, second way that we can know God is by prayer. We talked about that. I love that song. Y'all sang that song right before we started. Right? Give everything to the Lord in prayer. Every single word of that song is like, oh, man, I could just skip this whole middle section of my sermon. Um, but I'm not going to, so just relax. Um, there are two general ways to pray, and I want to highlight both these. They're both incredibly important. The first way to pray is you set aside a special time and place. How many of you have been told to have a prayer closet or a time or an evening? Would you raise your hand if you have been told somehow this is the way you should do it, and it's a set time and place? That is fantastic advice. Fantastic advice. Daniel did it in captivity in Babylon, right? Every day, three times a day, he'd get out there, and he'd face the east, and everybody knew. Right? That's what he was, man, just committed. You read about Jesus. Every time he got kind of stressed out and things got kind of, he would, he would retreat. And he would go be by himself, right? And spend some time with his heavenly father. Um, and, and you ever wonder what they were talking about during that hour? Have you ever thought about that? So Jesus retreats. He just healed a bunch of people. What does he say to the father? Oh, Heavenly Father, I beseech thee. 
And I listen to some of our prayers. No wonder y'all are afraid to pray. You don't have, you don't have that vocabulary. That's, a, that's crazy vocabulary. Here's what I think went on. And it's just me guessing, okay? Just me guessing. It's basically, hey, how's your day going? Right? Hey, what's the plan for tomorrow? Here's what's going to happen tomorrow. And you know, so what's and so what? what you know, that, that guy that bugs you, presses all your buttons. You're going to be walking by him tomorrow. Let's talk about how you're going to handle that because you know he's going to press your button, son. Let's just talk about that just real quick. What, how, how are we going to handle this? And I just think it's kind of a conversation like that. God, Jesus is saying, wow, man, did you see that crowd? I, you know, and it's just this conversation with a dad that loves him and that wants to give him everything in heaven. That special time that Jesus had, I think, where he just got alone with dad. I don't know if you've ever, if you had a relationship with your dad and you ever had to be away from him for a long time. I don't know, maybe some of your dads were deployed. I know I watch on the TV and the news when somebody comes back, you can't help but just burst in. I, it's like, stop crying, Jerry. Oh my goodness, you're a little girl. I, I can't watch those commercials. Like, oh, it's like watching a scary commercial. <laughs> I'll have a nightmare. Those, I'm just going to burst out crying. That, 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 and I, I feel like that, that, during that special time, that, that's what it was. That was going on, right? Jesus and his heavenly father is just like, oh, wow. Breathe, breathe. Just help me breathe, Father. This has been a heavy day, and tomorrow's going to be huge. I'm going to the cross tomorrow, and you need to help me. What am I, how am I going to do this? That's what I imagine his conversations with the Heavenly Father. My wife and I, we, whenever I'm not on injured reserve, we take walks. And when we're really feeling it, we'll talk we'll, two or three walks a day. I mean, when we stop doing those walks, those are like, almost I compare them to quiet times with God. They're my quiet times with Diane. Because when we're in the house or wherever we're at, we're both, a lot of things are going on. We're kind of, kind of connecting, kind of, sort of. But we both recognize since I've had this back issue that we haven't been taking our walks. And every time this has happened, it's always happened because I have a stupid injury. But every single time it happens, we recognize immediately our relationship begins to not suffer, but it can tell, right? That we're not, we're not, uh, we're not on the same wavelength. We're, we're kind of missing, we're miscommunicating, right? We show up at the wrong restaurant at the wrong time. I told you, no, and I wasn't listening, uh, right? You know, it happens. Now, those are very valuable times. Compare that to your time with God, and you've decided a quiet time, special time and place is the way to go. Now, here's what it'll tend to look like if you do it just this way. You have your morning meeting with God. You go through your day. Hey, I need this. I need that. I need this. And literally at the end of the prayer, you say, I'll check back with you tomorrow. See if you got everything done. <laughs> and I'll ask again. If you forget, I'll just ask again tomorrow morning. But I'll check in with you every morning for about an hour, and, and you, the rest of the day, you just need to be doing your thing, God. You need to be taking care of me, right? What kind of relationship would that be? You can't have it just this. You can't stay with just this hourly. Hit that next slide there. You also need Paul. Paul, Paul with this. This is suggested by Paul. Pray continuously. This is in 1 Thessalonians. Hit that next slide there. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It should be an ongoing conversation. I know a lot of you call, they, what are they called, arrow prayers? I would take it one step. I just want to encourage you, you know, do, do it. You, you, and the morning time and arrow prayers both kind of say, Start and stop. 
I, I have a need, Lord, did, and, and then... And what I picture, what, what I picture in Scripture is just this, it, it's, it's not counting the eight hours you're asleep, it's 16 hours of just conversation. It never stops. It's literally like Diane and I, we like to spend a day, my day off, we, we just run a bunch of errands. And that's the day we kind of are able to reconnect because we don't get our walks. That's an important day, right, that we just, we just kind of just reconnect. Um, that's what our prayer life should really be about. It should be a combination of both things. In the morning, spend some intense time with him, and then just the rest of the day, like just kind of checking in. Hey, you know, hey, that person down the street, boy, that person looks sad. Lord, please help him. Um, you know, you're driving down, just you're aware of God everywhere. You're running everything. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about um, going and talking to this person. Lord, um, do you think they need to hear about your son? Just give me a sign. I'm going to go talk to him right now. Just this ongoing conversation, and it's also an ongoing source of encouragement. I feel like Jesus was just as ongoing. He had his special times, but this was ongoing. He needed to be encouraged 24-7. This wasn't just a, a one time a day that God would go, hey, you're still my boy. It was 24-7. It's 24-7 all the time. Ongoing source of encouragement and power. A fluid, dynamic communication between a heavenly father and his child. That's what prayer is. Don't try to make it formal. Just drop away from the whole formalness. And it'll become, it will take on a life of its own. You will find yourself arguing. Like when my wife and I, we take walks. Sometimes we argue. And it's okay to argue with God. You can tell him, I don't like your plan. I'm getting really tired of your plan. But I know you love me and this is best, so I will continue. But you better help me because I'm about to quit. That's an honest conversation. And I think he honors that. He honors that with just power. The best quote, again, I, this isn't my advice, but I, I love Smith Wigglesworth. You ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Yeah, me neither until I read this. Never pray for more than 20 minutes and never go more than 20 minutes without praying. Now, I'm not sure I agree with never pray for more than 20 minutes. Sometimes I, I, I get going and you've all, anyway, um, but I like that. Never pray, never, never go without 20 minutes without praying. But again, understand that praying is listening as much as talking and asking. Listening to God as we read his story, listening for what he's seeking and then praying for the same things that he's seeking, not what we want, but what he wants. Right? Genie isn't, God isn't the genie in the Bible. We, we kind of make him that way, Santa Claus, slot machine. We've got a whole bunch of terms um, for him. But he's not there to fulfill our desires and wishes unless, unless, unless you have spent so much time with God that your wishes line up with his wishes. And then he answers those really fast. It's crazy. If you spend enough time with your Heavenly Father, you will begin to see and pray for the same things that your Heavenly Father is seeing and would like to see happen. And He wants it to happen through you. Because if it happens through you, your faith is going to be built. The people around you are going to see God. Like He's like a lot of us. Well, I could do this. It would be a lot quicker if I do it myself. But if I let my people do it, there's power. God could have done all this Himself. But He gives us that incredible dignity and honor he works through us, broken vessels. That, that always amazes me. Uh, let me see here. Uh, final word about doubt and prayer. When we pray, doubt. That always, that's right up there. I've talked about this before. I want you to listen to this, this, this passage from a, a letter that James is, the brother of Jesus. His name is James. It's the letter he wrote. It's called James in your Bible. It's near the very end. He writes this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. That's a good thing to ask for. 
because that's something that you know he would be okay with. When you understand that wisdom is the mind of God, it's literally like, Lord, tell me what you're thinking. Do you think he would say no? If you prayed, Lord, show me what's on your heart, do you think he would go, no? This passage seems to indicate that he would very rapidly, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Hit that next passage here. Here's the conditions, though. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. And again, we all go to that place where sometimes I doubt if he exists. Oh, he'll never answer my prayer. That's not what this is talking about at all. The people who wrote this, they had no doubt whatsoever that God existed, that he was active and alive in their lives. That, this passage, you can't go there. You can't go where they didn't originally go. That, you can't do that, right? And in this passage, they're talking really about, do we doubt the goodness of God? Not that he exists, but do you believe that he loves you and that he wants the best for you, even though sometimes you don't understand it? Do you have faith that he loves you and wants the best for you. Would you just do this if you believe that? Then all of you, if you shook your head yes, then you have no doubts. This passage is not talking about, again, uh, is there somebody out there that loves me and cares? That's not what it's talking about at all. So let's just get past that doubt thing. Whenever we talk about doubt in prayer, what he doesn't want you to do is doubt that he loves you and that he wants the best for you. That's what he's talking about. You can't go, I believe, and I'm going to pray for 24 hours, and now you have to do it, God, because look at my belief. Doesn't work that way, right? So, continuing, verse 6, the conditions. Got to believe and not doubt, right? It's a matter of trust and distrust in the wisdom of God, the God that you're seeking, right? This passage is dealing with somebody, though, watch very closely. He's dealing with somebody who, in their prayer life, they don't doubt God, but they doubt his advice, Right? It's the type of person who prays and they got one eye open on the world and they're kind of checking with God and then they're going to compare. Watch this. When you ask, you must, not, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Literally like a drunken stagger. Somebody who kind of looks to God's advice. They call themselves a Christian when it's convenient, but when the rules don't fit them and when they think the rules are going to rob them of their fun, they don't. And they become very difficult to work with. You can't work with somebody who keeps flip-flopping. Are they going to do good? Are they going to do something godly? Are they going to do something selfish? You can't ever tell, right? Which are you going to get? Are you going to get somebody faithful? Are you going to get the unfaithful part of them that day? Verse 7, 7 and 8. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded. Again, it's not doubt. It's doubt that God's plan is better than what I thought of. That's the double-minded person. Well, I've got this plan, but Lord, what do you think? Yeah, no thanks. That's the doubt. Unstable in all they do. You don't want to hang out with a person who does that. Third way to know God. Let's move along here. And thus find your purpose in life. Number three is the Bible. Y'all knew I was going to get to that eventually, right? The Bible. But in order to know God by reading the Bible, y'all got to know a few things about the Bible itself. I'm just going to very quickly, just maybe some of y'all are aware of this, but it really helps. First of all, the Bible's not a book. Y'all are aware of that. It's not a book. Biblos is a city. They, they produce a lot of papyrus. They produce a lot of books. And therefore, books, Biblios, Bible. That's what we got. It's, but it's not. It's not a book. Hit that next slide there. It's actually a collection. 
a collection of ancient histories, poems for worship, collected writings and words of God's prophets, letters from first believers, four accounts of life and ministry of Jesus, a whole bunch of other literature, a whole bunch of different things kind of all compiled together. Right? Written in three different languages over a period of about 1,500 years in more than a dozen countries on three different continents by nearly 40 different people. Let me name some of those peoples. Poets, prophets, kings, soldiers, farmers, shepherds, princes, priests, historians, fire, fishermen, tax collectors, doctors, scholars, businessmen. They're all there. And they wrote it in caves. They wrote it on board ships. They wrote it in palaces, in prisons, and in deserts. Now, here's the amazing thing about all that. All the other major religions of the world, there was one author, one book. And within that one author, one book, there was an amazing consistency of information, voice, plan, purpose, because one person put it all together. And what's so amazing about our collection, our book, our Biblos, our collection here, even with all that, hit that next slide. There's really only one author. <laughs> it's God. In 1 Timothy, you read this. All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. Back it up, back it up. Fine, I'll read it from here. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. Now hit that next slide. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every word in this Bible. 40, I mean, all that stuff, but it all went through God's Spirit. And God's Spirit gave it a unity and a voice and a consistency that's almost beyond belief. Almost beyond belief. Probably one of the most powerful pieces of information you'll ever read about your Bible Check out Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active. That ought to make you stop right there. <laughs> alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now again, I'm not going to go into a lot of different reading plans or methods or systems. Y'all can get on the internet and find that out. But I, I want to make a couple points here. This is really important. The desire is to pretend or wish that this book wasn't so vast. That it was a simple document written by a simple man, simple to understand. Now, to a certain degree, you could go there. But I think like King David, I, he never said this, but why diet and starve yourself when you have a banquet sitting in front of you? Sure, you can, you, can, you can know God to a certain degree and say, well, I don't read my Bible because it doesn't make any sense and all those these and thous, and you're, you're just starving yourself. You're going you're gonna to make it to the end, but what does Scripture say? Almost like somebody who barely made it through the fire, <laughs> a little singed, a little beat up. Why starve yourself? There's so much in this book, so much amazing things. So here's what I want to suggest to you use some tools. I know a lot of people will say, just read your Bible, and I'm going to respectfully disagree with that. The Bible, again, all the complexity, all the different people, all the different languages, not to mention nearly 45 
hundred years, 4,500 years of time and culture and language and, and all that, don't pretend that it's a simple doc. Don't make it simplistic. It's an just incredibly deep. You can be reading this through your rest of your life and you won't plumb the depths of what's in this book. I promise you. It will never cease to amaze you. But don't, don't, don't pretend it's simple. I, I heavily, heavily suggest get a whole bunch of tools beside you. Have fun with it, right? Make it your adventure. You all go on a vacation. I know a few of you get in the car and just turn on the key and start driving. Most of us aren't crazy, though. Sorry, Kay. <laughs> right? Most of us have a big old plan. We work it all out, right? And we, we know what we're going to do. Let me just tell you a few things. Use some different translations. I love the message version. When I work with teenagers and kids, I do not use the NIV. I don't use, definitely don't use the King James Version, right? You're literally reading Latin to them. And you're going, why don't you understand this? Right? Give them a translation that they can understand, that they can get excited about. Different translations. Use commentaries. Beacon. If you're a Nazarene, hardcore, <laughs> died to the bone, Beacon is our Wesleyan Nazarene commentary. It will help you place all the events. It will help you place the big ideas. It will show you all the themes, all the connections. It will chain reference everything for you, and you'll just sit back, and you won't be able to stop. Right? You, you just, it, it's amazing. Commentaries. Christian writers. Thank you, Sylvia. Where are you at, Sylvia? Where's my... Right there, she runs our library. I tell you what, that's the most amazing library. If you're not out there checking books, looking at the commentaries, looking at all the, the incredible list of authors, you are starving yourself. First of all, they're free. So if you want to spend your money at Amazon, knock yourself out, but we got them free here. Check them out. There's so much good stuff in that. Oh my goodness, my goodness. Apologists, read apologists, people who agree with us. Read the people who don't agree with us. The antagonists, when I read like John Stott or The Evidences for Christ, I'll always find the hater sites. I want to know what they're thinking. I read John Stott and I read Lee Strobel and I go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm already convinced. He's preaching to the choir. But the unconvinced, boy, they find a lot of holes. I'm like, whoa. Didn't even know that. I'm going to have to think on this one. Don't be afraid of all these other writers, handbooks, guides, Bible study, book that you get down at the Christian bookstore. Different formats. I just wanted to show you something. This is kind of what I do. I, my wife started this. This is the one-year Bible, right? It, I like it because I, I, I kind of like reading through the Bible, kind of getting all the big events kind of in the right order so I don't stand up here and look like an idiot. Um, it's a great little tool. I, I kind of use it. And then right beside me, I like having this. This was my... Nazarene, Point Loma, Nazarene University, Old Testament history book. But I use it so much because as I'm reading through the prophets, I'm reading through Kings and Chronicles, I'm like, I'm confused. And I read in here and, and it'll lay it all out for me. It's got these little maps, got the, I mean, everything. And, and I suddenly, with the story I'm reading, it gains weight by adding the details, right? Otherwise, I just skim over and I go, well, I did my 20 minutes, I'm good to go. Time to go get yogurt. <laughs> Bam, I'm gone. Right? But you start digging into this and you almost can't get up. And your wife's going, hey, dinner's ready. Honey, just a minute. Use a lot of different tools. Different formats. This book, I did. 
Man, I'm, and then I'm done. This is called the Quest Bible. Zondervan is the publisher. The amazing thing about it is on the, on the, the, the panels on the sides, it asks all the questions. As you read through Scripture, we all naturally come up with it. It seems like the same questions. There's like about 50,000 of them. This book addresses those 50,000 questions right where you're reading. And then you'll train reference over to this book, and then it'll, it'll talk about, well, he got this idea out of Deuteronomy, and use tools. God wants to be known. He desperately wants to be known by us. And I want to hit this last passage, Jeremiah 29, 12. Hit that last one there. If you're wondering whether God's got a plan for you, the exiles were wondering the same thing. The Jews were captive in Babylon, and they thought God had given up on them. The people perished without a vision. And so they asked, do you still have a vision for us? Do you still have a purpose for us? Or did we blow it? Are we no good anymore? Are you going to go find somebody better? He speaks to us. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The next one. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. Again, we, we understand that if we know God, if we participate in what God is doing, then we're in a relationship with him. You will seek me and you will find me. I will be found by you. If you're wondering, stop. Stop wondering. If you spend enough time with God in prayer, if you spend enough time in his word, his purposes will become very clear to you. And surprisingly enough, we all kind of have the same purpose. We're to glorify God. And in his word, he gives us like just a thousand different ways to glorify him. And he lays out a bunch of rules too. But listen, those rules are there for you. Simply, if you do these things, you're going to miss out on the joy. You're going to miss out. Bow your heads. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it does have the law in it. Thank you for the fact that the law can't produce a Christ-like character. It points the way. It shows us the ways that we won't be like Christ. But Father, by the power of your spirit, you can make us like Christ. But we have to be intentional about it. So, Father, as we go through this series, help us be intentional. Help us to set up some goals, some Bible reading, some prayer goals. And, Lord, love us in return. We know you will, but you, you ask us to ask. Show us, Father. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Folks, have a wonderful week. Thank you so much.